Bibles out to James chapter 1, please. I always get a little nervous when we jump into a new place, just finding the new place, whatever that uh, new book will be or new passages. And so there's a certain um, comfort knowing that in Genesis, when you're in chapter 22, you've got a long ways to go. But for some, uh, just for some variety, we, we, we decided, I decided to stop and we'll come back and, and look at some of these other places. But unintentionally, I did not put chapter 22 of Genesis and James 1 uh, together in my mind until the uh, middle of this week, and I realized how uh, interesting of a segue uh, James 1 is from Genesis 22. And in some ways, it may even seem like uh, we're just continuing a thought that was uh, passed on from Genesis 22. As we get into James, I want to just explain a little bit of, about what the whole book is going on and then, and then uh, pay attention to what uh, he's, he's trying to teach us in, uh, in, the, in the whole book. You know, this week, and this is what kind of really struck with me, is uh, that this is something that, um, that I could not have planned and I would not have planned had, uh, had not God uh, kind of ordered these events. But, you know, we, as we have seen this week, for many of us, we're all going to go through bad times. We're all going to go through hard stuff. We're going to call it by different names. Some of us are going to see the hard times or the bad times as physical suffering. Sometimes we're going to call it heartbreak, crisis, temptation. You might call it a test of your faith. We'll see those bad times or those trials and tests come in different forms. For some of us, we may see them in a health form. For some, that crisis may be a financial crisis. For others, it may be a crisis in your marriage, with your children, with a family member, with a friend or a co-worker. Or for some of us, it may be a spiritual test. Sometimes we see that that trial affects us personally. Sometimes it affects us and punches us right in the face because of the way that it affected someone close to us. Maybe a parent dealing with a crisis with their with their child that is completely out of their hands, and yet it affects them. Though not they're not the one undergoing the treatment, or they're not the one going through the deepest part of it, uh, they are definitely affected in one way or another. And it just it just really struck me uh, very very uh, just bluntly this week as uh, so many different people uh, going through so many different things, and many of those things shared, and some of those things not shared, and uh, even. Uh, as the week continued to progress, finding out more and more people going through uh, various temptations or trials. And that's really what James is talking about here. James, the brother of Jesus, the uh, half-brother of Jesus, uh, was also the uh, pastor or the elder in the church of Jerusalem. As those of you who've been uh, coming on Sunday nights and remember uh, as the, the Jerusalem Council when they decided if the Gentile Christians needed to be saved uh, the same way that the Jews, uh, or I'm sorry, the, Gen the Gentile Christians needed to become Jews in order to be saved. And James was the kind of the, the, the one who presided over that Jerusalem council. And, that, uh, and that's this same James that writes this. And so as we read from James, we kind of sense a pastor's heart. Someone who is not just there to spew a bunch of facts at you. And, and in, as we get through the book, and I would encourage you to read through it. It would take, take you less than five or ten minutes to read a chapter and you could literally read the entire book uh, in, one, in one sitting or listen to it or whatever the case may be. 
But as you, as you read it, you, you notice that there are, uh, he's just kind of just dropping information uh, and, and it almost seems random until we, we intentionally take a look at it. But we see there's a loving concern behind, uh, behind the words uh, from Pastor James here. He's writing to a group of Jews who know what it means to suffer. He says in the first verse there that it is the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. This would be the, the Jewish Christians who had been scattered because of persecution uh, quickly after Jesus became uh, uh, became alive again, and he spent those those forty days wa- uh, walking about and proving that he was alive. He went back to heaven, and then the Book of Acts starts. And as we've studied so so much into Book of Acts, we've seen that how the 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 outside world did not respond well to Christianity. Uh, they 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 persecuted the Christians. Uh, Paul, before he was saved, led that persecution and 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 arresting them and and uh, hurting them in every way he could and even killing some of them because simply because they followed this this these teachings of Jesus Christ. And so these Jews have been scattered from their homeland. Some of them had lost jobs and money and wealth. Uh, many of them lost uh, good relationships. As we read through James, we even find that some were struggling just to find food for their family. They were they were starving. Others uh, had uh, had no place to sleep. And others were dealing with serious health needs. And so James is writing to these people. And, and really, as we study these, these chapters, we're going to see three overall themes. And we'll see them all mentioned in this first 11 verses that we're going to look at. And then over the, the course of the next four and a half chapters, he's going to uh, tie them together and explain them further. But the three themes are this. Number one, responding to trials. Number two is the need to have wisdom. And number three is having the proper perspective of wealth. And what seem like maybe three uh, completely unrelated themes, James takes all three of these things and ties them together and weaves them in and out of his letter to these these Jews. James is really writing about, and we're just putting it under one big theme, real life, every day, day in, day out, Christianity. We hear a lot about faith. We studied a lot about faith in the life of Abraham, and we read about those things. But what we, what we kind of fail to miss sometimes, or we fail to see, is what real faith looks like. Okay, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to follow Jesus. Now what? And it's less about the, um, less about the, the, well, let me just put it this way. It's boots on the ground. This is where the rubber meets the road. Here is what you do. Step by step, here is how you be a Christian. Here is how you do Christianity. And that's what James is trying to talk to them about. He's talking to religious people. They know what it means to go to church. They know what it means to pray. They know what it means to study the Word. They know all of these things. But James speaks to them of real, practical, everyday type of things that they can apply to their lives, that they can almost use as, maybe use as the checklist. And James says, these are the things that you need to do in order to be a real, bona fide Christian. A good faith Christian. You will recognize some of these passages we get into James as a very familiar. Uh, in James 3, when he talks about how the tongue is, is able to control the whole body, and he uses uh, metaphors as, as a, a rudder on a ship, or uh, as a bridle in a horse's mouth. And, and, that's, and if you can control the mouth, you can control the whole body. And we'll recognize... Uh, teachings like that we'll recognize later on when he says that if you have faith but you don't have works your faith is dead 
and he begins to explain. We even looked at that a little bit last week uh, in, uh, in, in regards to Abraham. But this morning, James is going to just, uh, just jump right in with no introduction except for one word, greeting. And he's going to meet them where they are. He's speaking to a group of people who have gone through severe loss. They have gone through severe trials, and he calls that a temptation. Later on, he'll call it the trying of their faith. He'll call it different things, and it all means kind of the same thing. And so we jump right in and we see what James has to say to these people to begin his letter. He says, number one in verse two, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And if we just stop and try to digest what he just said, it doesn't make a lot of sense at first. Count it all joy. The word count there, it's, a, it's an active verb. It's not something that you allow happening to you. It's something that you do to it. And it says, I want you to count it joy. Another way we could say it is to consider it joy or to think joy. Uh, not how you should feel about these trials, but how you should respond to these trials. So he's, he is... Uh, uh, he is acknowledging the fact you are going through some difficult times. Here's what I want you to do. Count it all joy. Consider it joy. And not just any joy. He says all joy. That word there all means it, not considering all of your trials joy, but he's saying count it all joy or pure joy or complete joy. This is complete joy. What? What is complete joy? The fact that you've fallen into a diverse or diverse temptations. The fact that you have uh, been tested. The fact that you are going through something difficult. And at first glance, and even at the second and third glance, it seems like why in the world would you count it joy that you are being tested? That you are going through something? Uh, we, we, we have... Many in the past and even presently, many of us going through something or have gone through something. And you think, how in the world do I jump up and down for joy and clap my hands when the doctor delivers a bad report? When the bank account says empty or negative, when the job ends and I got no work in front of me anymore, when my child disappoints me or when my friend betrays me or or whatever the case may be, and we've all gone through something like that, and that's why it's diverse. And yet James says in each of these things, you can consider it or count it pure, complete joy. Why in the world would you do that? He explains. He says in the next verse. He says, oh, well, let me, let me explain this to you. Uh, let me give you a, a def- decent definition of joy. I like, there's two of them I wanted to share. The first one, I don't like as much as the second one. The first one is this. Joy is a settled contentment in every situation. That's good, but I like this one better. Joy is an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. I like that. It is an unnatural reaction. And that's true here. Because it is not natural when the doctor comes in and says, it's cancer. Or when you look at the bank account and you realize that the bills and the bank account don't have the same amount of funds to take care of each other. Or when, uh, when, when devastation of whatever kind, we don't say, you know what, I just feel like jumping up and down for joy right now. I just feel like singing a song. 
We don't want to do that because it's not natural. That's why joy is defined here as an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, unadulterated, thankful trust in God. When I have joy, it's because I'm trusting in God. That's why it's unnatural. Because trusting God isn't just something I do automatically. How can I do that? Verse number 3, James keeps going. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Why can I consider it joy? Pure and complete joy? Because I know that the trials that I'm going through are going to produce something in me. They are not worthless. They are not for nothing. They are producing patience. Now, when we think of patience, at least I think of patience, when I immediately uh, think of having to sit in rush hour traffic. Right? Now, if you live in Sherman, you don't go far out of Sherman, you don't really know what rush hour traffic is. But uh, rush hour traffic is usually how I define patience. Or uh, when I have to wait on someone, waiting in the waiting room at the doctor's office, only to be brought into a smaller room to wait even longer at the doctor's office, only to talk to someone who is not the doctor and just comes in simply to tell me that they are not the doctor and they will go and find the doctor. And I continue to wait and I am patient. Or, oh, the trying of my faith when I pull up in the drive-thru and it takes me longer than five minutes to get my food. Man, the trial of my faith, and it's I gotta be patient. But when James is talking about patience here, he's not necessarily talking about sitting in traffic. Remember, he's talking about a thing that is produced from the trial. Another way to describe patience, and really, as we look at the definition of this word, it means to endure. It means to be steadfast. It means to put up with. And so these testings or these trials produce endurance. The trials that I go through are not pointless. They teach me to endure, to keep going. These trials teach me to not give up. And that's the point of these. That's the point of the trial. But that's not the point that I, the, 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 whole, the whole point of the trial, if you will. Because he goes on that endurance is not the ultimate goal. God is not trying to see how long I can last so that I can say, I dealt with it longer than you did. Walk around. Oh, well, I found I got cancer. Well, I found I got cancer and three extra tumors. Well, let me one-up you there. I got cancer and dementia. I don't even remember how many things I've got wrong with me. And we try to one-up each other on all the things that we've got wrong with us. That's not the point of trials. It's not to walk around so that we've got a cross to bear so that everyone can say, oh, man, look at him over there. Man, he's got some, he's got some difficult things coming up in his way. Man, he's a great Christian. That's not the point of trials. Though trials produce patience, that's not the end goal. That's not the end desired result. He goes on. He says, because you know that the trial of your faith works patience, he says in verse number four, but let patience have her perfect work. The word patience again means to endure or to an endurance. So he's saying, let patience or endurance do the thing that it is meant to do when it comes into your life, which means that the test brings patience, and once patience is brought into my life, something begins to happen to me. I love this. He says, because uh, endurance does something to me. Enduring a trial completes or fills in something that was previously lacking before. Think about it. He says, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. He uses uh, very descriptive terms there. He says you're perfect or complete. Not sinless, but perfect, as in completed. He says entire, you're whole. 
wanting or lacking nothing. Which means that before the trial, I was lacking something, and the trial came, and enduring the trial began doing something in me, and at the end of that, I'm perfected. I'm completed. I'm filled in with something that before the trial, I didn't have. That's important to understand. Because most of us just look at the trial as a bad thing and we say, God, why are you doing this to me? But what James is trying to explain is, before the trial, there was something missing in my life. And now that trial has presented an opportunity for me to fill in the gaps, if you will. I can live my life incomplete, imperfect, lacking things. Or I can take the steps necessary to find out one day I I found the things that were missing in my life, or specifically the things that God says are missing in my life. I would probably uh, assume that many people would say, you know what, God, if I had to choose between being uh, filled in with these little missing pieces here or having to go through this trial, I'll just assume go without the missing pieces. I don't want the trial. Uh, But what God sees there is something that needs to be finished And he uses the trials. The point is not persecution because that would make God cruel. The point is not perseverance because that would make the test pointless and hopeless with no end in sight. But because patience is doing something in my life, it is perfecting me. And this is the overall attitude to have during my trial. What about... So this is the, this is the, the, the perspective I need to have as I go through. This trial is doing something or it's giving me an opportunity to get finished. The trial doesn't fix me. The trial doesn't perfect me. Persevering through the trial, that's what helps me. I like to lift weights. Many of you probably you like to do the same. Uh, the, the weights don't make me strong. Right? I have a bunch of weights in my, in my gym. Those don't make me strong. How many of you have weights in your, in your house somewhere that are collecting dust and don't get used ever. You got a Bowflex that's got clothes hung all over it, or you got a treadmill that's got stuff piled on top of it, or whatever it may be. Uh, those things don't make you stronger and better uh, in better shape. It's enduring those things. It's getting on the treadmill. It's getting under the weight. It's pushing against it and enduring it. And I, I don't like the weight. Yesterday, if you know, if you know, if you ever lift weights, yesterday I uh, I got halfway up and I was done, and no one was home. <laughs> I was I was in trouble, and uh, I was like, huh? and I was there. I was like, all right, I'll lower it down and I'll try again. And I lowered it to my chest, and huh? there was even less there than there was a minute ago. And I was like, oh no. And uh, the, 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 the bell tolleth for me. And so uh, I was able to roll it down and, and I got up off it. And then my, my natural reaction, I don't know why it is, but when I get stuck, I start laughing uncontrollably. Uh, it happened a couple of a week or so ago. I was doing another thing and, and uh, my, my wife happened to be there at that time. And I was, I was trying to lift it and, and it stuck and I just couldn't stop laughing. And she's in there and she's like getting a little scared because like the way I was laughing was just, uncontrollable and I was like I can't do anything I need help I, and she couldn't lift it off and and so it was you know it was like kind of push it off to the side all those things that's what brings the result is actually getting under the weight bearing that burden for a little while if you don't if all you do is have the weight 
I don't like doing that. It's too heavy. I want muscles, but those weights are just so heavy. It makes me sweat. I don't want to do that. But I, I want to look like you. I want to look like you with all the muscles and all the, and all the, 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 the I want to run as fast as you and I want to jump as high as you, but I don't want to go that way. I mean, where's the pill? Where's the, where's the, 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 the magic thing that, that makes you look like that? I don't, I don't want that. I just want that. What James is saying as a Christian, you may not even know what you're, what you're missing over there. But as it stands right now, you're missing something. You're incomplete. All of us are. I don't think any person in here would raise their hand and say, I've got everything I need right now, and, and be truthful and honest about it. And if you did, you just are ignorant and don't know what you don't have yet. Okay? But then the trials come. And we say, oh, I don't like this. Why are you doing this to me? Why does God let bad things happen to people? Especially to His children. I signed up to follow Jesus, but it's not, gonna, it's not turning out the way I thought it was. Sometimes God does the trials to me, and sometimes at least God just allows the trials to happen. But every time God is in control and God has a plan and every time God can make something good come out of something bad. And that's the perfection. Those are the things that I have to endure. Patience perfects. But once I get past that and I get that perspective down, now what do I do? That's kind of like just saying, all right, I'm not going to quit. Now what? It's sitting in the doctor's office and being told the bad news and saying, okay, I will deal with it. Now what? What do I actually do now? And here's the hard part. If you're like me and you sit with someone and you want to try to encourage somebody who's going through a tough time, you ever wonder what you're supposed to say? Because everything that comes to my mind sounds like, if that comes out of my mouth, that is going to sound so insensitive. It's going to be the total wrong thing. Someone asked me the other day, they said, do you ever like say something and then regret it? I'm like, yeah, I'm a pastor every week. What are you talking about? Do you? Yes. Uh, most of the time, I'm regretting it as I'm saying it, and I just can't stop, and I, and I, and I just have it done. But hopefully, most of the time, it gets stuck up here and doesn't actually make it out of the out of the uh, out of the mouth, and I think if I say that to them, for instance, you're going through a bad time, and has anybody ever come and said, I know what you're going through? Maybe you're at a funeral of a loved one, and someone says, I know what you're going through. Do you now? Did you have to go through these exact things? Did you have that same relationship that I had with that person? You might understand a little bit, but you don't know what I'm going through. Uh, uh, I've, you know, I've barely lived my life, and yet I know what you're, I, I, it's just, it, there's no comparison. Even if I lost the same thing you lost, I can't compare it to what you have. And, and sometimes, though they're well-intended, they just come out so wrong, and they're just received so wrong, and, and, and it's hard to know what to say, and so generally, the same one line comes out, praying for you. I don't know what else to say. What, what, what are you supposed to say? It'll be okay. I know you're dying, but it'll be okay. It probably won't hurt. I know you lost everything, but hey, I mean, it's just stuff, right? You know, there, there's nothing you can say, and even if it's truth, it doesn't get received the right way, and so we wonder, what do I say? I love this because this is what you do. Though I can't tell you what to do, 
if you're going through the trial, James tells you what to do. He says in verse number 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing simply what to do. All right, I'm going to endure the, situ- the, the trial. I'm going to be perfected. Something is going to be better at the end because of this. And it might be at the other side of eternity. It might, be, uh, it might be in this life. I don't know, but I've just decided I'm going to endure. Now what do I do? I'm going to go ask someone, and they say, I don't know. Pray, read your Bible, put a smile on your face. You know, some of those things are good, and some of those things are like, no, that doesn't help. James says, here's what to do. When you don't know what to do, ask for wisdom. Ask the one who actually knows what you need to do. Because God knows how you're going to be perfected. And God has orchestrated these events into your life. And God knows what you need to do every step of the way to get here. And God loves you. And God is going to make sure that you get to where you need to be in doing it the right way. This is how you do in your trial. God's giving me wisdom shows that He cares about what I'm going through. Sometimes in my trial, I feel like, you know, God, you don't care about me. You don't love me. But the fact that God gives me wisdom, the fact that God says, if you don't know what to do, ask me and I'll tell you what to do, that shows me that He cares about what I'm going through. He wants me to get to the end of it. He wants good to come out of it. He wants something good to be the result rather than just be stuck in the bad. And so he says, let me help you through this. Let me give you wisdom. He wants me to gain from the trial and respond the right way to the test. But I want you to notice what James warns us about in verse 6. He says, if you're going to ask God, that's great. He will give it to you liberally or generously. He abradeth not means he does not criticize you. He doesn't... uh, He doesn't rebuke you for the fact that you ask for wisdom or don't have enough wisdom to make it through. You don't know what to do. But notice what he says. But, verse 6, let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. The word wavering is another word for doubting. He says when you ask, you better ask without doubting. Oh, wait a minute. What do you mean by not doubting? What does it mean to not waver? Because when I ask for wisdom, I ask for wisdom all the time, and God doesn't, like, drop a letter out of the sky and said, here's the next five steps you need to take. Sometimes it's just keep following. Step out by faith. And what we know, faith is not necessarily, I'm completely confident this is the right thing, but I think this is what God wants me to do. And I think this is what God wants me to do. And I think this is what God wants me to do. And sometimes there's a little bit of doubt there. What does he mean by doubt then? Because he says, notice what he says about a doubter. He says, uh, "Let the, uh, he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So he says here, uh, if you, he's speaking to those who are not sure if God's wisdom is what they really need. They haven't really decided if they're going to do it God's way. They're standing here in their trial, and someone told them, well, if you pray and ask for wisdom, God will tell you what to do. And they're really kind of still testing out their options. Figuring out, well... If what God says makes sense and will quickly bring me out of this, then maybe I'll do that. But if I can find something easier, better, quicker, I'm probably going to take that. Let's just be honest. And God says, if you ask like that and you're doubting that my way is the best way, then don't even bother asking because it says you won't receive anything from me. 
He says, that, look how he describes doubters. Those who doubt are like ocean waves. They're at the will and the mercy of their own circumstances. Like an ocean that, that it goes wherever the, whichever way the wind blows. And that's how they are. In doubt, I, just, I feel good today because I got money in the bank, because my health is good. And then all of a sudden, oh, my health is not good. And, and have you ever gone through a run of those roller coaster days where you felt really good and really horrible all in the same day? Like, what changed? If you can step back and look at it, and sometimes it's the silliest things. It's a thought. It was one phone call. It was one word. It was one look from somebody. All these things can totally change my day. If someone calls me as soon as I get home from work and said, hey, I want to give you $1,000, I promise you my day is going to go, woo! If someone calls me right after church and says, you owe $10,000, my day is going to go, woo! And all of a sudden, that $1,000 doesn't mean as much. You know, all these things can change. If someone walks up to me after service, I know someone's going to do it, so I'm just telling you not to right now. That was actually a good sermon. What does that mean? And I'm going to walk home thinking, actually. You know, and it doesn't always get meant that way, but you see, little things, and they may not even be real things. They're just little things where they go up and down and they, When I'm living in doubt, I'm at the will of my circumstances. I'm at the will of the waves. I just do whatever the wind is going to push me to. But when I'm following God, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. Remember Peter walking on the water? Who else can fault Peter for getting a little scared? Because you know when Peter was walking on the water, he wasn't walking on flat water. He was walking on waves which has never been done before, there's probably lightning and thunder and wind going crazy. And Peter's walking around, and I don't know how far he gets, but finally human instinct kicks in and goes, this is not normal. And he gets scared and he sinks. And I always chuckle when Jesus pulls him out. He says, oh, you have little faith. And they're thinking, he had a little faith? And he was able to little faith walk on water? I mean, what do I have? I've never even done that. But that's what happens. He was looking at the circumstances around him and that caused him to sink rather than keeping his eyes on Christ. Because as long as he kept his eyes on Christ, he was doing just fine. And that's what James is telling us here about this man. He is a, he is a, a man who is at the mercy of the direction of the circumstances. And notice he says those who doubt won't receive wisdom. He calls them double-minded people. He says they are non-committed. This isn't just a person who is rebellious against God. This is simply a person who is just not committed yet to God. You know, you can come to church and not be committed. You can call yourself a Christian and not be committed. You're the type of person that is trying to see if this thing is going to work out for you. And as long as everything stays right in your opinion, you're on the ride. But as soon as it gets bumpy, as soon as you hit a wall and you say, I don't see how this was supposed to be good, you're off and you're looking for something else. It's just, it's just the nature of how we are as people. But a committed person says, I don't care where this ride takes me. This is what God wants me to know. I'm going. Here we go. It's bumpy. It's just going to be exciting. It's, it's uh, scary. Hey, I pay lots of money to go to amusement parks and be scared and then get off and say, let's do it again. I'll just do it in real life. That's, that's what a committed person will do. And notice what he says here, that this double-minded person is unstable in all his ways. Very similar when Jesus was talking about having two masters and trying to serve one or serve the other. He says you can't do both. 
He said, you are, you are double-minded, James says. You are trying to do this and also trying to do this. And they conflict. I'm trying to follow God alone, but I'm also trying to figure out if there's a better way. You've got to commit. You've got to do something. You can't jump off the pier and stay on it at the same time. You've got to do one or the other. You've got to commit to the one or commit to the other. You can't do both. And so James goes on, and what's very interesting is he, he kind of jumps into this brand new thought that seems totally different, and yet it makes so much sense. Verse 9, he says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he's made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Now, there's a lot to this. And just briefly, let me just give you a, 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 a highlighted perspective, if you will. He's not saying that poor people should rejoice simply because they're poor. There is no virtue to being poor having no money in your account. Yet there is no special uh, blessing because you are rich and you have more than other people. God doesn't love you more. He's saying that poor people should not rejoice because they're poor, and neither should rich people rejoice because they're rich. But what he's saying is learn to see the world through God's eyes. Because recognizing that the life that you live on this earth is a very temporary life. If you're poor, it won't last forever. If you're rich, it won't last forever either. This is a temporary life. One of the, one of the greatest, you know, we're confronted with every time we come to a funeral. Life is short. Life is fleeting. Uh, life is a vapor. He says here, life is like a flower. It's wilted. Those, many of you have gardens. And just a few weeks ago, you had a beautiful flower. And now it's gone. It's ugly. There's nothing beautiful about it. And it's so, it took so much time. There's three little flowers. Well, now there's like one, because I think my nieces plucked them up in the spring. But there was these, what are they, tulips? Tulips. There was like really bright. I'd never seen them before, and all of a sudden they were right there, at the edge of the, right kind of where, where we park our van there. And uh, so I was like, wow, I've never seen those before. And all of a sudden they're gone. I had to wait a whole nother spring, and then I found out my nieces plucked them up, so I got Wait a whole lot longer now. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're like a flower. It's just, it's just so beautiful, but it doesn't last forever. And that's how our life is. And that's what he's saying here. Life is fleeting. Life is temporary, whether it be one of suffering or whether it be one of ease. Whether it be one that is abundant in pleasure and riches or one that lacks. But eternity, that's forever. And this is at the very least a call for us to fix our attention on something other than our earthly circumstances. You get the, you get the, the, the tie-in now? I'm going through a trial. And James says, I know you're going through a trial, but there's more to life than just this trial. There's a whole nother life ahead of you. And this one little trial will not pale, will pale in comparison to everything else. With a focus on the things of this world, we become in danger of adding that second master, of becoming that double-minded man. Let me read a verse here from uh, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh, in, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look, look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So, very quickly, let me just apply this first passage here about these things called trials. We're calling this in this first first message here, enduring faith. Let me say this. Bad things are going to happen to you. And it's okay. Really, it's okay. Bad things are going to happen to me. And that's the attitude I need to have. It's okay. 
I don't have to feel good about what I'm going through. And this is not a sermon that says you need to rejoice because you are sick, because you are suffering, but in the suffering. I should think good about the, circum- about, about the good that the circumstances can produce. My trials will reveal what is lacking in my life. Two things they reveal. They reveal whatever is needed to complete me, and they reveal the wisdom that I need to know what to do. So I can respond to my trials in four ways. It's in your, 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 your notes here, but just very four little words that you, can, that you can use to respond to your trials if you're going through a trial. Number one is to commit. It's the first thing that's got to be done. You've got to commit. Commit. Decide to endure the test. To remain no matter what. I don't care what comes. God, you are in control. You think about Job. The Lord giveth. The Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job, you just lost everything. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a great song. Part of the song says, I served him before, and I'll serve him today. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Commit. Resolve to hang in there no matter what. Follow God and yield to His will. Realize that the trials don't make you better, but enduring them will. Number two, consider. Choose to think about the good that will come because you endure. See these trials as opportunities to improve or fix whatever is lacking in your life. Number three, ask. Ask for wisdom. If you've committed to following God and God says, I'm going to not only make a path for you, I'm going to help tell you how to take each step down that path. Give him, give him an opportunity to tell you how to make those day-to-day decisions. Number four, keep an eternal perspective. As you go through this life, realize it's not about this. One day, all of these things are going to fall into their rightful place and I'm going to see, you know what? It didn't really matter things that I thought mattered. And it might just be that some of the things that I didn't really think were that important, those were the things. That maybe the seemingly insignificant events, maybe those are the greatest strength builders in our life. And maybe the things that we thought, oh man, this i got to do this perfectly or, or the rest of my life is going to be messed up. And maybe after we get through it and we realize it wasn't really. Who cares? Keep an eternal perspective. There's more to being a Christian than just this life. I'm not here for me. I'm here for Jesus and His glory. So, this morning, if you're not going through a test, congratulations. I'm so glad that you are not going through a test. Uh, we, as a body, as a church, we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice, right? And so if you're not going through a test, I'm so happy that we don't, you know, that our that, that part of the body is healthy. But right now is the time to commit. When everything is good, commit. You know what? I'm in this for good. I'm a Christian for life. I am committed. I am going to be a bona fide Christian. I am going to stick with it. I don't care what. And almost in the back of my mind as I say this, since I prepare my mind and my notes in my office this week, I think by committing, it feels like I'm asking God, prove me now. And I really don't want you to prove me. I really don't want the test, but I am committing. If you are going through a test this morning, then right now is the time to endure. 
Right now is the time to keep going. It's not the time to quit. It's not the time to give in. It's not the time to re-question whether or not you should be doing this. It's the time to say, you know what, God, I'm still here. God, I need wisdom. I need to know what to do. God will tell you what you need to do. His Word tells us. He gives it liberally, generously. Do you need to know what to do to follow God? Ask Him. He says, I want to tell you. I want you to follow And for all of us, whether it be those going through tests or whether it's those, uh, fortunately, we're on the top of the mountain right now, we must live every day with eternity in view. We've got to keep going knowing that this day matters for a reason. Why does God have me here? Do I have an abundance of things? James is going to tell me how, as a real Christian, I can live as a person who has been blessed with wealth. And James is also going to talk to me about if I'm a person that doesn't have a lot, how I can use this day and my lack of wealth to glorify God in a real, everyday, practical way. We can't pretend to know what God is doing every time. We can't pretend to say, and I won't pretend to say, if I visit you in your home in the hospital or talk to you sometime and you tell me some burden that you have, I can't pretend to say, you know what, God is doing that for this reason right here. And I'm even very hesitant to try to, to, try to uh, speak and, and tell you what you need to do because I don't know. None of us do. I say, I'll pray for you. I'll pray with you. I encourage you to pray. We try to encourage you to just hang in there and keep going. And what can we do to maybe come alongside you? And though I can't walk this whole road with you, I can walk a little bit beside you. I can maybe help carry some of the things. And though at the end, you're, it's all up to you, I can kind of be there as much as I can. We may never understand exactly how our suffering fits into God's plan. But what James tells us this morning is we can know how to respond. So then it's put to you. What will you do? When you hit the trial, or right now in the midst of your trial, how will you respond?